I guess I can't open my sermon notes this time because now is when I'll need them. Uh, but we welcome you today. We are coming uh, to, I guess, message two in our proposed series on this most important of Paul's epistles. I want to read again the, I guess, what's called the introduction to the book because this is an epistle that clearly works up toward what we've suggested as a thesis statement. To be sure, it is more structured than we find in other epistles, and I trust over these weeks, even though today we'll just be considering some of the very early verses, the reading of all of this will lodge in our hearts as we come to those powerful statements of Paul's theme, the gospel. Romans 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Amen. We'll end our reading. And we trust again the Lord to add His blessing to the public reading of His inspired Word. Let's do again pause together ask the Lord to help us to consider His Word today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come again and pause to acknowledge Your presence. Lord, Your presence is everywhere, at all places, at all times. You're God. But we pause to remember, to remind ourselves that we're in Your presence. And we pause to ask You to help us today that this, Your own Word, which is living and powerful, might indeed show itself to be such in our hearts this very day. 
Help us in preaching. Help us in hearing. Help us in living. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time as we introduced this epistle, I considered that it was a letter written by an unlikely author to unexpected recipients about an unusual theme. I think that last little phrase, the unusual theme, as is often the case with preachers, a a slight accommodation to alliteration, but yet uh, not really. The theme of this gospel is a gospel, or the theme of this epistle is a gospel of grace. The religious mind, whether it be false religions, where it even be a natural fleshly understanding of the Christian religion, is always a religion of works. Or perhaps a religion of, yes, God's working, but us cooperating to really make it work. The unusual thing is when the gospel of pure grace is understood and preached, and believed. Well, that theme, that unusual theme, is what we find today in these opening words and greetings. Those closing verses that we read that speak of Paul and powerfully saying he's not ashamed of it, that theme is the Gospel. And in that thesis statement, he phrases it as the Gospel of Christ. But this is a theme that so overwhelms his thinking, it overwhelms his heart, that he can't hide it even in these words of introduction. He refers to it in verse 9 as the gospel of his son. And even when Paul introduces himself in the opening phrases of verse 1, he mentions the theme. He mentions that he himself is separated under the gospel of God. And so we come to this greeting today, or just part of the greeting, to consider it. But I say the Gospel is all the way through it. The greeting that we read here today follows a normal ancient sequence, and it's opposite to ours. In the ancient world, the author would introduce himself. He would say, this is Paul. And he just basically says, if we can summarize these many words of introduction, Paul, to the Romans. Well, that's the opposite of the way we do it. We usually start out by saying, dear so-and-so, and and then at the conclusion of the letter, love or sincerely yours, uh, whoever's writing. And you think about it, you know, our modern way is, it could be a little bit confusing and even dangerous. I was thinking of my beloved here. I won't carry this too far, but in our days of college, which was a cultural experience in itself, there was a, a system of notes that were, sent every night in between the dormitories. This is ancient history for many people, but you think about it. I write a note to Jan, and she gets it in the evening supply of notes and opens it up. Dear Jan, it was so great to meet you today. Your captivating smile and your, your lovely eyes. And she's, wow, you know, keeps reading and gets to the end, and it finally says, uh, you know, sincerely yours, or forever yours, Reggie. And she goes, oh, it's Reggie. I thought it was the other guy from History of Civ. You know, our way of writing, you might not know who's the author until you get to the end, unless you kind of look ahead, which I'm sure most often we do. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't want to have that kind of confusion. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm the guy that's writing to you, and you're the Romans. 
Well, when you look at this opening several verses, there's a from Paul part to Romans part. Well, what I want to look at today is the from Paul part of this introduction, of this greeting. And as I said, even in that part of a greeting, the from Paul part, he can't hold back setting forth his thinking. The Gospel so permeates his heart and his thinking that even in these words of greeting, can I suggest to you, in just the from Paul part, which is verses 1 to 5, well, there are seven statements about the Gospel that I think we find clearly set forth in these words of greeting. So I want to put those seven statements before you today, and we'll probably not handle all of them with the same point of emphasis or length. We'll just have to see. I do intend to get through all of them today, so again, we'll, we'll have to see. But the first statement, again, about this theme that's in these words of greeting is this. Paul is set apart to this Gospel. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Now we could have paused and taken a whole message on the word servant. We could take another whole message on apostleship. But like I said, I don't want us to be in Romans for the next 30 years. I'll be pretty much a fossil uh, by that time, if so. But I do want to come to pause on that next statement. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, there's something that could indeed be said of all of us that have been purchased by him. And he calls and recognizes himself as an apostle. The authority with which this letter comes to them certainly stands out in that because apostleship is not something that belongs to all of us. Particular commission, particular gifts, particular experience with Christ, with the risen Christ, was part of apostleship. But then he utters this phrase, separated unto the gospel of God. So the first statement I make to you today, as I said, is this. Paul is set apart unto this gospel. I find it interesting that Paul uses this phrase. I had thought perhaps, as I said along the way, we might pull out smaller phrases and take whole messages on them as we go along the way. Well, this is one of those I thought about very early on, turning into a whole message on its own. But think about that phrase. Paul says, I'm separated unto the gospel of God. It would have been remarkable for Paul to utter these words because the word here that's translated for us, separated, is the same root word from which Paul's previous faction in the Jewish religion was formed. Pharisees were separated ones. Well, I can't flesh every thought out in this today, but I do want to tarry on this phrase for a moment. We've come to a point in the modern church, and by that I mean the last 150 years, where false teaching, unbelief with regard to the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scriptures, permeated evangelical churches, Protestant denominations. 
And there was a necessity among Bible-believing Christians to separate from unbelieving teachers. The liberalism and modernism, fundamentalist controversy of a hundred years ago, well, put forward a movement, a separatist movement. And it was a movement that was necessary to separate from false teaching, to make the truth of the gospel clear. John Murray, in one of his defenses in the early 20th of the truth, wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. And he just carefully put forth the new teachings of liberalism in contrast to the historic teachings of the Bible and of Christianity, and said basically, these are two different religions. They have two different things that they promote and different things that they believe. Now, the irony of history was that the new religion kept the buildings, kept the schools, kept all the property, and just purported to continue on. And the people that were still holding on to what those churches had always believed had to leave and start up from scratch. It was a separatist movement. And we would call ourselves separatists because we can't cooperate with False teaching. But one of the things I think that sadly entered into the separatist movement is that separation slowly became something different. I'm speaking very generally here. There were good people involved in these things. But separatism gradually became, in many quarters and in many hearts, more of a separated from thing than a separated unto thing. And I think it's important to pause and think through the difference. Paul says here, this man who had been a separatist, had been a Pharisee, that he was, as we know in so many ways, completely opposite of what he had been before. He now says separated unto the gospel of God. And I say that phrase and that perspective is important. We are and must be as Bible-believing Christians in our generation separated from a lot of stuff that goes on in the world. Not only should we be separated from the false teaching of apostate Christianity, we should be separated from ungodly lifestyle among those that surround us in the world. That involves separation from a lot of different things. But if separation from is all you're concerned with, it's very easy to wind up where the Pharisees wound up. Self-righteousness. Pride. Some of you might remember I preached a sermon a few years ago. What Jesus and the Pharisees had in common. That's one of the few times that I try and put a flashy title on a sermon to get our attention. But think through that. Plug a Pharisee into the church of the modern day. Where would a Pharisee stand on 
abortion? Where would a Pharisee stand on creation science versus evolution? Where would a Pharisee stand on the moral questions of our day? Say, homosexual marriage. Various other moral issues that are hot-button topics in our generation. The Pharisees would have stood exactly where Jesus would stand. Separated from those ungodly, unlawful things. But they crucified Jesus. Because Jesus, if you will, was not merely separated from the ungodly things that surrounded Him. He was separated unto the truth. He was separated unto the Gospel. And you see, friends, if we're not separated unto the truth, we're just separated from all this other stuff, then we can gradually lose the truth. And then what's the difference between us and the various other false religions that are also separated from these bad things? To know and understand the Gospel. To be jealous for the Gospel. To have that be the distinguishing mark of who we are and what we believe. Yes, it will issue in us being separated from different things. But they'll just be the corollaries. They won't be the main thing. And it's easy, particularly when the flesh and pride get involved, that separation from this other stuff gets to be the main thing. And then we lose the Gospel. Paul, I say, says in this opening statement, he's set apart under this Gospel. It's that Gospel that would define him. As he told the Corinthians that he had to write to about a lot of different things. Stuff, if you will, that they needed to separate from. But he said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul is separated unto the Gospel. So I say our first statement is Paul is set apart unto this Gospel. Secondly, This Gospel comes from God. We said in these opening 16 verses, he uses three different phrases. The Gospel of Christ. The Gospel of His Son. But in this first one, as he just introduces himself, he calls it the Gospel of God. This Gospel comes from God. Now this, of course, will be fleshed out as we get into the Epistle. But it just underscores at the very outset that this Gospel is based upon divine initiative. It's not something that we thought up. It's not something that would even naturally occur to the fallen mind. Here Paul will powerfully in this book demonstrate here that left to himself, man will but suppress the truth. Man will gloss it over. He will come to pursue his own sinfulness. If this Gospel is a Gospel of God, if God is the initiator in this good news, well, of course, then it 
tells us at the very outset that this gospel is going to be a gospel of praise. It's a gospel of God, not of man. It's a gospel of God, not of religious man. It's a gospel that God has graciously given. We come then to our third statement as we press along. This gospel is the only gospel that has ever been or that ever will be. This gospel is the only gospel there has ever been or ever will be. Paul, having stated that he's separated unto the gospel of God, pauses, and we have this parenthesis here, this gospel which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now again, here is a, a phrase that is worthy of a message. It's worthy of a theme or a series of messages. But this gospel is the only gospel that has ever been or ever will be. Paul, you remember, is the apostle to the Gentiles. He's ministering, he's writing in the early days of the New Testament era. The New Testament as we know it doesn't exist. They don't show up at church. They didn't show up as we read in Acts today by the river. They're outside of Philippi and have their, their Bibles, Old and New Testaments, bound together in their hands. But they were familiar with, and significantly Paul states here, the Holy Scriptures. And Paul saying, what I'm bringing to you, this Gospel of Jesus Christ, this Gospel of God's initiative, is exactly what the Old Testament Scriptures are all about. That's a thing that calls such joy in some hearts and such unbelief and wrath and venom in other hearts when Paul went into the synagogues from the Old Testament Scriptures opening and alleging that Christ must needs to have suffered and to have died for our sins and to have risen from the dead. The Jews didn't want to hear that, many of them, from their Old Testament. Because that wasn't the message of self-righteousness that they had arrived at. That wasn't the message that separated them from all the other bad people. Paul says this is the only Gospel there ever has been or ever will be. It's this Gospel that was promised before the Holy Scriptures by the prophets. As I said, I could take a long time. I could take a series of messages on this phrase. But can I just underscore this? In the early days of my ministry, I had to be careful not to drift into a little unloading session against the dispensationalists in every message. Uh, Dr. Cairns made some jokes about me in Greenville about you know, the cause of the flood was rampant dispensationalism among the antediluvians and various other worthless, unnecessary comments like that. Um, but it was much on my heart, and it still is, you give you the illustration that I use. I'm actually teaching a class now on this for one student. I'm tutoring a class, so it's fresh in the mind again, you see, so it comes back to the pulpit. But it's, it's in the text. I say that dispensationalism is the car that American evangelicals got into to drive away from the purity of the gospel. 
Now, in the last 25 years, everybody's getting out of the car. But where are they? And they're trying to invent another system. They won't go back to the old Reformed biblical system of covenant theology. They believe what Charles Ryrie told them in the middle of the 20th century, that all covenant theologians have a bad hermeneutic. They don't interpret the Bible literally, so you can't follow them. All that charge is, is a debate about the millennium between premillennialists and amillennialists. Premillennialists believe that there's a future kingdom period to come following the church age in which God will revive Israel and Christ will visibly reign upon the earth. Amillennialists believe that what is happening in the New Testament church era is the fulfillment of those Old Testament kingdom prophecies. And there's a a wealth of stuff to debate and discuss about those two different views of the millennium. Now, if they all agreed with me, they would take the truth out of the Amel view and the truth out of the premill view and come up with the historic premill view and they'd all be happy. But that debate about hermeneutics is very limited. But I think the Dallas men convinced the American evangelicals that the old covenant system of the reformers, which is found in the early fathers and because it's found in the Bible, um, it's not you can't go there. It, it leads you, it makes you amillennialist and it makes you baptize your babies. It's all just evil and forget about it. And so now that everybody's getting out of the car, they keep trying to invent systems. We have a progressive dispensational system. There's now even a new progressive covenantal system that doesn't claim any connection with the old covenant theology. There's a new covenant theological system. And my opinion is, and it is a studied opinion, that all of these people are trying to invent a system that doesn't need to be invented. The old covenant view, a simple view, of the unity of the covenant of grace, of God's plan of salvation being to take sinners out of their union, the federal headship of that first Adam who led them to death and condemnation, to place them by grace into union with a second man, a second head, Christ. Chapter 5 is going to all be about. And it doesn't matter whether you live before Christ came or after Christ came. Whatever one of the dispensations you lived in, in those four that they put in before Jesus, it doesn't matter. Salvation has only ever been by being united by faith to Christ. And salvation only ever will be by being united to Christ by faith. Period. The Gospel is the only Gospel there ever has been or ever will be. The unity of the Scriptures. The singularity of the message. Since I've gone so far, I'll give you guys a piece of the lecture that comes to my one student later this week. I call it Ryrie's Dilemma. The old dispensationalists put forth multiple statements teaching different Gospels. Salvation by works under the Old Testament. In contrast to salvation by grace in the New Testament. 
evident not just in one or two isolated, unguarded statements, as Ryrie calls them. Schofield and Schaefer, everywhere. That distinction permeated their thinking. And they were rebuked powerfully and should have been for these things. So Ryrie has a dilemma. I've got to save the system. So how do I teach the unity of the doctrine of salvation that has been by faith through all the dispensations and yet preserve the dispensational theology? Disunity of saved people. Israel and the church. There's this distinction that has to be maintained the way Darby wanted it maintained. And Ryrie answers his dilemma by removing Christ as the object of faith for Old Testament saints. There are seven texts that he goes through to promote this answer to the dilemma. I could, sorry, I'm going on. But all of those texts prove the opposite of what he thinks that they prove. They prove that the Old Testament saints were pointed to and expecting Christ to come. My third statement, this gospel is the only gospel that has ever been or ever will be. Old and New Testaments alike, this is the gospel that was promised before by the prophets. Fourthly and quickly, this gospel focuses upon Jesus Christ. Of course, we've already anticipated this, but notice how quickly again Paul moves, pressing ahead in this theme of the good news, the gospel. This gospel which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, what's it about? Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel focuses upon Jesus Christ. Promised before, by the prophets, preached now by the apostles, this one and the same, Jesus. The Gospel focuses upon Jesus Christ. Clearly, the Gospel has a Christ-centered focus. Now, he gives us some statements here. The first one is, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And that statement is powerful for a host of reasons. But of course, most notably, the prophecies with regard to the coming Messiah was that He would be of the seed of David. You recall, and we looked at this not overly long ago when Christ debate with the Sadducees, talking to them about Himself. He says that the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, whose son is He? Well, they knew their Old Testament. They could answer plainly. The Messiah that's been promised is going to be of the seed of David. And then the Lord says to them, what about in the 110th Psalm? Where David calls this coming one his Lord. How can he be David's son and be David's Lord? Wow. The Sadducees, the Sadducees, the Sadducees and the Pharisees should have said, yeah. It does say both. How can that be? And of course, he's pointing to them with regard to the truth concerning himself. 
And even the way Paul phrases it here when he adds that description of the seed of David according to the flesh. The implication in that is, yes, he's of the line of David. Yes, he's bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He's truly man. But there's more. He's also declared to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now this phrase brings up some questions that scholars have to wrestle with. We don't have time to hammer them all out as it were today, but there's some debate with regard to that word translated here, declared. There's debate with regard to the Spirit of holiness. Is it Christ's own Spirit or is it a reference to the Holy Spirit? Well, I tend to go with those that see it as the Holy Spirit. And then if you look through the Scriptures, you see all three persons of the Trinity involved in the resurrection of Christ. Preached throughout Acts, God raised Him from the dead. Clear reference to the Father. Jesus Himself said, no man takes my life from me. I have the power, I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus resurrected Himself. And then we also see other Scriptures in here. The Holy Spirit engaged in the resurrection of Christ. But the question here is, is this something that's declared? Something that's merely demonstrated? Or as others see, and the word here could be translated and often has the reference of appointed. He's appointed to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Well, can I suggest to you that both of these are true if we understand it's not a theological view of adoptionism that Jesus just became the Son of God at that point. But if we see that in the resurrection, Christ is appointed to this role, His mediatorial exaltation, that this risen Christ, and we've spoken recently of the importance of the ascension, that as Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, yes, in a sense, as He said, He returned to the Father because He came from the Father, but yet the human nature of Christ, that man, that glorified man that is at the right hand of God had never been in heaven before. So when we ask whether this means declared in the sense of just demonstrating that's who He's always been or appointed in that mediatorial exaltation, well, the answer is yes. They both are true. It's thankfully one of those times where the debate between the scholars doesn't matter because they're both true. The Gospel focuses upon Jesus Christ. But quickly, if you'd come to our fifth statement today, the gospel is for all nations. We read here concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. The Gospel is for all nations. The Gospel is for all people. I have in my notes here a 
a little chronology of the Old Testament and New Testament histories, which I don't have time today to flesh out. But you know me very often, I am a, a big picture guy. If you look at the big picture of history, and you look at God's working in this earth, you see Eden, you see the fall, you see all men dead in trespasses and sins there in that first man. And you see how that the nations, the peoples rather of the earth, quickly fall into apostasy and perversion. And we see that phrase, I think we can more and more understand and perhaps tremble. The earth was filled with violence. And God sends the flood. He doesn't wipe out everything because He had a promise He had given of the seed of the woman that Messiah was going to come. So He preserves Noah and his sons and their families. And He promises at that point that He's never again going to destroy the earth by a flood. But the nations again or the people quickly turn into their apostasy and their sin. And instead of destroying them again, He brings them at that Tower of Babel. And He divides them. He confuses their tongues. I've twice already at this point. It's at this point that nations are introduced. Peoples are divided. And they, they don't understand each other. And so instead of destroying them, He just sends them in different directions. But shortly after this time, calls out a man through whom he's going to make a particular nation, Israel, through whom he's going to again honor this promise and send this Jesus. And Israel has gone through these closing centuries of the Old Testament. Where? Into their own apostasy. Into their own unbelief. And so they're chastened. And they're sent into captivity. And this succession of Gentile powers and nations is thrust upon them and upon the world. God honored His promise. He brought a remnant back. We've been looking at that in prayer meetings with Ezra and Nehemiah. And that scepter didn't from Judah until Shiloh came, the Messiah. And now that Jesus has come, the wonderful purpose of God's grace He's sending this Word again to those nations that for a season He just let go to their sins. This is a book that's going to deal with the uncomfortable truth that there are times in which God lets people go. There are times in which God even sends delusion and confusion to those that suppress His truth. But God has a gracious purpose. He's sending the good news. He's sending the Gospel to the nations again. And one of the biggest pieces of that sending of the Gospel to the nations You think even in the providence of God, Paul had been hindered from getting to Rome to meet these believers in that capital of the empire. 
And so instead, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he writes this epistle to just clearly set forth the gospel. And this letter, this setting forth of the gospel, has been going through the nations ever since. The gospel is for all nations. Sixthly, and quickly, the gospel calls for the obedience of faith. We read here that this has been given. He's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead by whom we've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. This gospel calls for the obedience of faith. Now sadly and quickly here, this is another portion of this that the scholars wrestle with. The phrase, obedience of faith. How do we take it? I don't often, as you know, like to get into the grammar. But we have to wrestle with it. There's a use of the genitive here. This would have been one of those quiz questions in probably second or third year Greek when you're translating something. Is this an objective or a sub or another kind of genitive? Well, if this is an objective genitive, then it has reference to the faith, but the article's missing, which would be a body of doctrine. So it would mean something like obedience to a body of doctrine, a body of truth. If it's a subjective genitive, then it would mean the obedience of faith, obedience which comes from faith. It would mean faith here then is like the source of the obedience. It's not obedience to the body of truth, it's that faith, the body of truth, is the source of the obedience. Here would be something like obedience which springs from faith, and that might even bring up the whole topic of sanctification, which does come in to this epistle of Romans. Or, for you really third-year Greek students, maybe it's not a subjective genitive or an objective genitive, maybe it's epexegetic. Trouble spelling that one. It means, in that case, obedience which consists in faith. They're kind of like two synonyms put together. Well, can we just say all are true? It's probably either the second or the third option. And I tend to agree with one that suggested these don't exclude each other. There is an obedience that springs from faith, but it's perhaps more true here what Paul is highlighting is that when this Gospel goes forth into the nations, what is required of us if we're to obey this Gospel is that we believe in Jesus Christ. And so the way to obey the Gospel is to believe it. It's to embrace it. Well, thus ends the Greek lessons for today. But I say our sixth statement is this gospel calls for the obedience of faith. But the seventh statement I make to you from this, from Paul section of the epistle, he says, For the obedience or for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name. For his name. We would perhaps say it 
with the additional phrase, and it's interesting if you look through how some of the various translations forward, but we might say for His name's sake. It's a phrase that has to do with glory. So my seventh statement to you today is, this Gospel brings glory to Christ. This Gospel brings glory to Christ. One of the things that Paul will clearly, forcefully, personally denounce in this exposition of the Gospel in Romans is he will denounce all human boasting. He will denounce all religious pride. He will denounce all confidence in ourselves. He will focus our thoughts and our attentions on this Gospel, this good news of sovereign, gracious activity on the part of a holy God. This is a Gospel of grace. Grace brings glory to the giver. Grace brings glory to Christ. Well, this is a hasty, although as you look at the clock, you see it wasn't overly hasty. But a hasty summary of the from Paul section of this greeting. Paul is set apart unto this Gospel. This Gospel comes from God. This Gospel is the only Gospel that has ever been or ever will be. This Gospel focuses upon Jesus Christ. This Gospel is for all nations. This Gospel calls for the obedience of faith. And this Gospel brings glory to Jesus Christ. I trust the Lord will apply this these thoughts with regard to the Gospel to every heart. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we come asking today for the help of the Holy Spirit that we might see something of the glory of Christ in this one and only Gospel. Write it on our hearts. Give us help in our understanding. Lord, give us growth in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray it in His worthy name. Amen.